0: Well, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, God.
1: Strong passage, isn't it? A little bit confrontive, and that sometimes it'll take a little bit of effort to wrestle with what exactly is Jesus requiring of us? What does he demand? And he... Speaks in very strong, stark language. Let me just get organised. That should appear. I don't have it at the back. That's going to be a problem. So this morning I called it the cost of discipleship. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 14 is in a house of the Pharisee. And in that passage he is talking about um, how to behave at parties and how to get rewarded in heaven it's an interesting passage to read um, and then in the midst of that conversation another Pharisee is present and he asks Jesus a question and says Lord there's a feast coming and it'll be a blessing if you get to sit at that table feast in the kingdom of heaven kingdom of God and to which Jesus gives another story in the middle of Luke 14 which is about the banquet of a man put on a banquet and when he was all ready, he sent out the servants to bring in those people who had been invited. And you remember the story where people then began to make excuses. One person said, listen, I've just bought a block of land and I've got to go and inspect it so I can't come to the feast. Somebody else said that I've just bought 10 yoke of oxen and I've got to go try them out so I can't come. And another person said, look, I've just gotten married so I can't come. And it's in that context where people have given what is the most common excuses that are still given today for why people don't accept the invitation of what Jesus offers in terms of salvation and a relationship with him. And that is, it's either our possessions take a higher priority or it's our affections, our relationships prevent us from doing so. And it's in that context that Jesus leaves the house and as he's going, a crowd of people are following him. Huh. Might help if I went back to what I already said at the beginning of an introduction, which I just jumped completely over. The Lord Jesus, when he rose before, after he rose from the dead and before he left, gave us a thing called the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is written up there for you. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. What's the purpose of the church? To make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Purpose of the church? To make disciples of all ethnic groups. Ta ethne, All nations. That's what it means. To make disciples. How do you do that? Well, you win them to Christ. You baptise them so they publicly declare their faith. And then it's an ongoing process of teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. That's the Great Commission. That's the mission of our church, which is how we've worded it. Many churches, most churches, reword it in a way which is similar, but using their own words, that's ours, to work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus. We're cooperating with what God is doing in the world. What is a disciple? A disciple is simply a learner. He's a student, he or she. Best word for us in English would be an apprentice. somebody who links themselves with somebody else in a relationship where they want to learn from that person not just information but it could be life skills that's what a disciple was in Jesus's world and the word disciple is used about 264 times in the new testament gospels and acts particularly to talk about what it means to be in relationship with Jesus we are learners students we are being trained equipped how do you become disciples well Jesus was very clear. Luke 9.23 says, uh, then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross every day and then follow him. That's what it means. That's how you become a disciple. Jesus says in John chapter 14 that being a disciple is that we are to remain in him. And if we remain in him, then we will bring forth fruit. And at the end of that passage, he says that, and if you don't remain in me, you can do nothing. Being a disciple is being in a very close relationship with Jesus Christ and learning from him, doing what he is equipping you to do and staying connected with him and his life flowing through you. In John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32, the Lord Jesus says very clearly, um, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. How do you become a disciple? By holding to his teaching, by believing it, by practicing it, by obeying it. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then, of course, you know this new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. How to become a disciple? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow him. Stay connected to him and he'll bring forth fruit in your life. Love one another and people will know that you belong to him. Hold to his teaching. That means you really are his disciples large crowds were traveling with Jesus as he left that house of the Pharisees these large crowds that were traveling with Jesus were along for the ride many of them they must have been very excited they must have been quite enthused some of them were following Jesus because of the miracles that he had done they were there for the enjoyment maybe the performance of it he just fed the hungry maybe he would do it again some were following Jesus because they liked his teaching They may have particularly liked the way that he corrected the pharisees and the sadducees and so on put them in their place some of them were following jesus simply because they were going along with the crowd they were curious but they were not committed there might very well have been a buzz in the thing because jesus is heading to jerusalem previous chapter 13 he says we have to hurry on to jerusalem because rather sarcastically or facetiously jesus says it wouldn't be right for a prophet not to die in jerusalem So he knows he's going to Jerusalem, he knows he's going to be arrested and killed. And so that's his focus, that's where he's headed. And this large crowd are following him. And he turns to them and he challenges them in very stark, strong language. They're heading for a holiday feast, Passover. Should be a great time of celebration or remembering God's deliverance. Maybe God's gonna do it again and deliver us from the Romans. Jesus turns to them, stops in his tracks, And he gives three checkpoints, three rather strong, confrontive statements about if you're serious about following me, this is what it's going to mean for you. Unforgettable. Jesus was interested in quality, not quantity. It costs to follow Jesus, but it costs a lot more not to, if you think about it. If you want to be a serious follower of Jesus, it's going to cost you. But if you don't follow Jesus cost is even higher that's what we're going to talk about in this passage verse 26 Jesus says if anyone comes to me to be a disciple and does not hate father and mother wife and children brothers and sisters yes even their own life such a person cannot be my disciple isn't that what what does he mean if anyone comes to me and does not hate well, he can't mean what the way that reads in English. Jesus didn't go around splitting families and saying, it's required of you if you're going to follow me that you have to have uh, positive antagonism towards your close relatives. You have to be continually arguing with them and upsetting them. You have to hate them. No, that's not what he means. It's not our culture. It's a Semitic idiom. It's a Semitic way of speaking. What it means, and I don't know why we don't say it this way in English, is that you are to love me so much that your love for your mother, father, wife, children, brothers, sisters, everybody else will be pale in comparison and they will feel like you really love Jesus but you disregard us, you don't like us at all, it's that contrast. It's clearly stated for us uh, in Matthew chapter 10 verse 37 where Jesus saying exactly the same thing in a different context, but he says there, you have to love me more and love them less. Matthew 10, 37, you can check that out. And it's a Semitic, as I said, idiom part of their culture, the way they spoke about things. And Jesus, by the way, too, would often say things in an extreme language to shock people, either out of a sense of humor or out of wanting to confront people, to shock them into something. So his statement, that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven is one of those. We hear it so often, we think it's, and we come up with these other very cute understandings that Jesus is always serious and he means the camel's got to get in and go through a little gate. I not mean any of that at all. Jesus was just being extreme in his language. We do it. We do it all the time. We do it in different ways. I've told you a million times. Well, it's an exaggeration, isn't it? I haven't told you a million times. But you know what we mean we just automatically understand it so too for these people they would have automatically understood when jesus is saying if you're going to follow me then you have to put everybody else in second place everyone is to be subordinate in your love for them compared to your commitment to me i get first priority first loyalty all other relationships parents wife children brothers and sisters Nearest, closest friends, everybody below him. So if there is a clash between what he requires of us to do and with what they want us to do, then he wins. I told you before, many years ago now probably, but when I decided to uh, become a teacher, a uh, primary school teacher not a physical education teacher, they didn't say anything. When I decided to marry Rhonda, Dad didn't say anything. When I decided to buy a car, when I decided to buy a house, when I decided to do everything that I've done in my life, didn't say anything. Went home and told Mum and Dad, Dad, we're leaving being teaching and I'm going into the ministry. He took me by the arm, he grabbed my elbow, he walked me into the lounge room and he sat me down and he said, are you sure? Do you know what you're doing? The The only thing he ever questioned me on my life was my decision to leave teaching to become a pastor. It's another story and there's other details that I'm leaving out, but it's interesting. Jesus is saying, you've gotta please me, not others. If somebody's gonna be offended, don't offend me, offend them. If somebody's gonna be upset or grieved, grieve them, not me. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to be a disciple of his, you have to be committed to following him. A commentator said this, let me read it to you, see what you think. I'll read it twice. We can focus on family, parents, spouse, kids, too much. We can dote on them too much, but we cannot love them too much. We can focus on family too much. We can dote on them too much, but we cannot love them too much. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? 1 Timothy 5.8 says that if we as followers of the Lord Jesus, I want to be very clear, Jesus, don't understand, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He is not saying that we are to neglect our families, of course not. Jesus wouldn't contradict himself, you know, he would say, honour your mother and father, it's uh, love your enemies, let alone love your families, it's love your enemies, uh, pray for them, um, Jesus is the one who came to establish families. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that if we as followers of the Lord Jesus neglect the members of our family and we don't look after them, then we are worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8. So you've got to balance this with that. I had a kid in, a friend of mine, one of my closest friends when I was at high school, not a Christian, Catholic by background, I think. His name was Tony. And... uh, Year 12, last year of high school, I'd become a Christian and my life was changing and my language was changing, my values was changing. About halfway through the year, Tony had a conversation with me about it and I gave him a, a good news New Testament. He took it home over the weekend to read it. Where did he begin reading the New Testament? Well, like any book, you begin at the beginning. So he began with Matthew chapter 1. He got up to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Close the book. Because he read if anyone comes to me and doesn't love me more than they love father, mother, wife, brother, sister he cannot be my disciple Tony, was very, he was an only child he was very loyal to his parents he couldn't do it, he made a choice I think he misunderstood it, I think I tried explaining it to him but it was done deal so don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying, nor water down what Jesus is saying my wife Ronda, needs to love Jesus more than she loves me. I need to love Jesus more than I love her. Translate that across to yourself, to your life. Such a person cannot be my disciple, Lord, Jesus says. What does this say about Jesus, thinking he can make these sorts of claims on somebody? Let me express it to you this way. Do you think you are following me? Jesus says, well, then you must love me so much that your family will feel that you hate them by comparison. Do you fancy yourself to be my disciple? Then you must love me more than you love yourself. Otherwise, don't pretend to be following me. That's what he's saying. That's where many of us fall short. That's where many of us spend more time, more focus on looking after our loved ones, our kids, than we do in helping them develop the relationship with Jesus. You know, we drive our kids everywhere, and we should. You can't give them the keys and let them drive themselves. We play with them, we teach them, we correct them. We probably spend more time, more occasions in a month of doing those things with our kids, whom we love and care for, than we do in praying for them, or praying with them, or reading the Bible with them, or encouraging them in their relationship with Jesus. And if you say to me, that's not true for me, That would be excellent. But I think for many of us, certainly for some of us, that's going to be the case. Do our lives reveal that we love our kids more than we love God? That's the challenge that Jesus is giving on this one. And one of the best forms of, um, so there's a relational cost, Jesus is saying. Hate my family. It's Jesus before all others. Jesus goes on and says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There is also a personal cost, carrying my cross. The best form of teaching, one of the best forms of teaching is repetition. Jesus has just said at the end of verse uh, 26 that, you know, you've got to hate mother, father, brother, sisters, wife, everybody else, and your own life. So now he focuses on that last bit. That last phrase, there's a purse to cross. You've got to take up your cross and carry it every day. And we use that expression to carry That's the cross that I have to carry. And when we use it, we're talking about noisy neighbours or a physical problem or a wayward child or whatever, some problem at work or that's the cross I've got to carry. That's not what Jesus means. When he says, take up your cross each day, he's talking about an instrument of execution. He's talking about daily death to self of removing your agenda it's the gethsemane mindset it's not my will but your will be done remember jesus prayed that in the garden three times he was wrestling his will to the ground not my will your will be done and it is a wrestle it's not going to come easy but it is essential The demand of the cross, Walter Chantry says, is universal. It's without exceptions for all of us. It's impossible to be a genuine Christian without denying yourself. It's perpetual, it's without end. That's one day at a time, but it's all the time. Being a disciple of Jesus is not a one-off event. It's not a decision that I make and that's it. It's not a doorway that I enter. It's a path that I am following. It's a day-by-day journey, that's a disciple, it's ongoing, it's perpetual, it's intentional. It's what I do, willingly, deliberately and consistently and taking up the cross means I am dying to my self-importance, to my self-agenda, to my self interests to me. It doesn't mean I don't get to do the things that I like and enjoy but it means I get to do them because he wants me to be doing them. The cross is not something at the end of our life. The cross is something we encounter at the beginning of our Christian life as we follow Jesus. I can't remember who said it. They gave three illustrations and I can only ever remember two. If you know the third, please come and tell me and put me out of my agony. A person who was nailed to the cross, number one, has no further plans of their own. Number two, they are facing forward and they have no intentions of turning back. And there is a third point, but I can't remember it but it's a good understanding of what it means. to take up your cross every day. I have no further plans of my own, except in submission to him. I am facing one way and there is no turning back. I will follow him. If we did that, it would be very obvious, wouldn't it, that we are followers of the Lord Jesus. A disciple is therefore someone who is willing to pay this personal cost. Uh, In the process then, as we pay that relational cost and that personal cost, our lives will become quite salty. They'll become like seasoning. Um, I don't have time to expand that too much further, but we have to consider, calculate and anticipate, this is a serious decision. I want you to imagine me 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and imagine my daughter is about 20, 25 years of age. That doesn't add up, so it's about 15 years ago. there's a knock at the door, this young man is standing there and he says, "I've come and I want to marry your daughter," to which I would say, at last, answer the but my... no, I wouldn't say that. <clears throat> you would, would you say yes? No, Of course not. Who is this bloke? Does he know what she's like? Would he be the right person for her? Let's take some time to get to know one another and what it's going to be involved in having this sort of a relationship. So too, with coming to Jesus. You've got to think about it, you've got to consider the cost, you have to weigh up: is this really for me? Is this going to suit me? That's exactly what Jesus does, he gives two illustrations. He says, suppose there was someone and he wanted to build a tower, you know, in his vineyard or something, and first thing he would do, he would sit down and he would, uh, you know, design it, and then he would cost it, and then he would figure out, can I afford it? And then in the process, then he would get other resources and builders and stuff, and... If you don't go through that process, if you just say, I want to build a tower and you lay the foundation, you pour the concrete <clears throat> and that's it and you run out of money. Well, what a dope, that's what Jesus says. The people will realise uh, and they will ridicule, ridicule you. Um, you don't need to lose money on trying to build something that you now can't use but you, you built something which is not finished and so therefore is of no value at all. Consider the cost, consider the consequences before you make the decision. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me to the crowd, there's a relational cost, there's a personal cost, and he's going to go on to say, and there is a sacrificial cost. Second illustration he gave, very quickly, it's a different illustration, as you think about it, of a king who was going to war. In the first one, it's something he was deciding to do. Will I? Second illustration is of a king who has another king coming to invade him and he sits down and realizes I have 10,000 men and he's got 20,000 men, it's a superior force and he's coming against me, what am I going to do? A wise person would sue for peace, send a delegation and come to terms of agreement for a peaceful settlement. What do you do when there is a superior force coming against you? Well, decide to surrender and to cooperate, to be peaceful with. Jesus is saying in the first illustration, If you follow me, what if you do consider the cost? In the second illustration, he is saying, what if you don't? What if you don't follow me? There is a superior force coming against you, and you won't be able to win that battle. So you've got to think about the consequences both ways. That's what Jesus is illustrating here. And then goes on with a punchline. In the same way, those who... um, Do not give up everything. Can't be my disciples. You've got to give up everything. Bless you. I didn't look up the Greek word, but everything means all things. I made a list. I sat down. There's a beautiful illustration from a guy called Juan Carlos Ortiz, and I've used that several times over the years of being here, (coughs) where the Lord is having an interview with a person And the person wants salvation. He says, well, you can have it, but it's going to cost you everything. You've got to give up everything. And he says, what do you have? And he goes through a list of what he had. And at the end of it, Jesus says, okay, all of that now is mine. It belongs to me. And you get to have eternal life, forgiveness and salvation. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, hang on to this stuff for me. But when I want it back, let it go. Give it up. It's a very powerful illustration, it was for me. So I did that during this week. I sat down and I started to write down everything that I own. I And if you can see that, you can't read it, but you can see that I wrote on both sides. And the more I started writing, the more I started adding. And so on this side, I've written clothes and shoes and sneakers and slippers and exercise equipment. And then on that side, I started thinking how many shirts and socks and jocks and anchors and ties and belts and coats and trousers and T-shirts and hats and caps I have an iPad, an iPhone, I have AirPods, I have a Fitbit. I have cooking books and magazines, photos, jewelry. I have one wife. Ornaments. It's about the only thing I've got one of in my life. I got 20 Bibles. I have thousands of books. And on and on and on. I have jewelry, I have pens, I have a printer. We have about a dozen teddy bears. Somebody's got a thing, teddy bears got an electric truth, and on. You write out a list of everything. And then for me, I said, Lord, this is all that I have, and I'm a little bit embarrassed about how much I have. And Rhonda, I said this, I showed her this, and she said, "Yep, we have been abundantly blessed. We not just have things, we have some nice things, like you have one of the nicest husbands. (laughs) That's what she said to me. No, she didn't, no we own a lot of stuff Jesus says if I'm serious about following him I've got to give up everything and I realised isn't it interesting, you read the Bible lots in your life I realised this week a rich young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus said to him sell everything, give it to the poor and come follow me and I said Jesus only said that to one person the rich young ruler then I Realise for the first time, actually, he says it to all of us. You've got to potentially give up everything. Let it go and follow him. It doesn't mean you're selling it and giving it away unless he wants you to. But if you're hanging on to it, it's his and you know that. Let's move on. Um, Who was the guy who wrote, who's the lady who wrote through gates of splendour? Elizabeth Elliot, her husband's name was Jim. Jim Elliot said, I've been trying to remember all week his name. Thank you, Graham. I'll ring you next time. <clears throat> Jim Elliot said, If you possess something and you can't give it away, you can't give it up. You don't own it. It owns you. If you've got something and you can't give it away, you can't give it up. You don't own it. It owns you. It's worth thinking about. Jesus before everyone else, Jesus before me. And Jesus before everything that I've got. Then Jesus finishes with this. What appears to be, that's strange, when you wrestle with it, <clears throat> which is how the passage actually ends, you've got ears to hear then let them hear. He's saying think about what I've just said. Salt is good. I'm saying that to my doctor next time I go and see her. Salt is good. Salt is good, isn't it? Have a tomato without salt. Put a bit of salt on it and you'll go, Whoa, they're nice. A little bit of salt is good for you. Jesus said, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's, you can't. It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It's to be thrown out. Salt is sodium chloride. It's a stable compound and it can't lose its saltiness. Jesus is speaking, not scientifically. He's speaking uh, at the level of common, of common understanding. This is how we speak. Salt can't lose its saltiness but it can appear to be less salty because it's been mixed with impurities so it looks like salt and you grab it and you use it but it's not as salty because it's got impurities in it well that's got the name of salt but it's not salty what's it good for? nothing, throw it away you can't fix it, you can't purify it you can't do anything to it, throw it out that's what Jesus is saying, get it? If you're a disciple in name but you're not a disciple where everyone, everything, and yourself is in submission to him, then you've got the name but you don't have the reality. What are a good for? Nothing, it's worthless. If you're gonna follow me, Jesus says, take it seriously. And that's the standard he shocks the crowd with. And then he challenges them to think about um, there's only one way of being a disciple of Jesus, bottom line is, and that's being fully devoted to him, sold out completely. What does all of this mean for us? I've really gone quick to finish. Jesus before everyone else, Jesus before me and Jesus before everything else. My response, here we go. I've got four things, quick. <clears throat> what did God say to you this morning and what do you want to say to God? For me, I made out that list. That was my, one of my responses. And I gave it back to God and I surrendered everything to him. And in future, I'm going to try and not only prune some of that, but before I go and update my iPad or update my iPhone or update this stupid Fitbit to maybe an Apple Watch or something, (laughs) I'll pray about it and say, Lord, is that what you want me to do? Because it's yours. What's your response? I learned also from this passage that some people follow Jesus for different reasons and for wrong reasons. Jesus is only interested in people with a genuine relationship in him who want to put him first. He's patient with those of us, that's all of us, who struggle with and who wrestle with this and stumble and, you know, get off track. But he's patient with us because if you're serious, genuine and fair income about it, but if you're pretending, he's not that interested. It's very easy to be a nominal Christian, to turn up, go to church, and if that's all you do, that's very easy. But to listen to Jesus, to obey his commands, to believe in him, to confess him before others, to surrender everything to his life, that's what's required. What do you need to do on the basis of what you've heard this morning? Or even to think about, what does this say about who Jesus thinks he is? Who does he think he is that he says, you have to love me more than everybody else? Well, think about it. And when you realise who we use, you realise how appropriate it is for him to say that. So let's pray together and let's pray for grace to persevere and not to lose our saltiness, but to stay hot for him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you speak very challenging and straight words. We pray that you will help us, help me, to follow you with our whole heart, to follow you consistently, to please you before we please anybody else, to surrender everything to your use and to your disposal, and Lord, on a daily basis, for us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you. We pray this in your name. Amen.